Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on patreon.com. Rayanna Bennett, Thomas Schuster, and the one and only Katie Mack, who is a wonderful producer and a good friend of mine. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, these wonderful names that I just read are brand new patrons on patreon.com where you can support creators of the work they like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest, and wake up more refreshed the next day, consider going to patreon.com slash sleepyradio and donating even a dollar a month. And at $5 a month, you get all kinds of extra poetry readings that I send every month that are exclusive um, and not on the regular podcast feed. But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So if you would like to be a part of making this show, Go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I'm going to be reading one of our most requested authors, obviously Jane Austen. Um, I'm going to be reading Emma which, after over 150 episodes, it's kind of crazy that I haven't read this on the show yet. So tonight, for all our Jane Austen fans, the story of Emma. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter One Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and a happy disposition seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence, and had lived nearly 21 years in the world with very little to distress or vex her. She was the youngest of two daughters of a most affectionate, indulgent father, 
and had, in consequence of her sister's marriage, been mistress of his house from a very early period. Her mother had died too long ago for her to have more than an indistinct remembrance of her caresses, and her place had been supplied by an excellent woman as governess, who had fallen little short of a mother in affection. Sixteen years had Miss Taylor been in Mr. Woodhouse's family, less as a governess than a friend, very fond of both daughters, but particularly of Emma. Between them, it was more the intimacy of sisters. Even before Miss Taylor had ceased to hold the nominal office of governess, the mildness of her temper had hardly allowed her to impose any restraint and the shadow of authority being now long passed away, they had been living together as friend and friend very mutually attached, and Emma doing just what she liked, highly esteeming Miss Taylor's judgment, but directed chiefly by her own. The real evils indeed of Emma's situation were the power of having rather too much her own way and a disposition to think a little too well of herself. These were the disadvantages which threatened alloy to her many enjoyments. The danger, however, was at present so unperceived that they did not by any means rank as misfortunes with her. Sorrow came, a gentle sorrow, but not at all in the shape of any disagreeable consciousness. Miss Taylor married. It was Miss Taylor's loss which first brought grief. It was on the wedding day of this beloved friend that Emma first sat in mournful thought of any continuance. The wedding over and bride people gone, her father and herself were left to dine together with no prospect of a third to cheer a long evening. Her father composed himself to sleep after dinner, as usual, and she had then only to sit and think of what she had lost. The event had every promise of happiness for her friend. Mr. Weston was a man of unexceptionable behavior, easy fortune, suitable age, and pleasant manners and there was some satisfaction in considering with what self-denying, generous friendship she had always wished and promoted the man. But it was a black morning's work for her. The want of Miss Taylor would be felt every hour of every day. She recalled her past kindness, the kindness, the affection of sixteen years, how she had taught and how she had played with her from five years old how she had devoted all her powers to attach and amuse and help, and how nursed her through various illnesses of childhood. A large debt of gratitude was owing here, but the intercourse of the last seven years, the equal footing and perfect unreserve which had soon followed Isabella's marriage on their being left to each other, was yet a dearer, tenderer recollection. It had been a friend and companion, such as few possessed, intelligent, well-informed, useful, gentle, 
knowing all the ways of the family, interested in all its concerns, and peculiarly interested in herself, in every pleasure, every scheme of hers, one to whom she could speak every thought as it arose, and who had such an affection for her as could never find fault. How was she to bear the change? It was true that her friend was going only half a mile from them, but Emma was aware that great must be the difference between a Mrs. Weston only half a mile from them and a Miss Taylor in the house. And with all her advantages, natural and domestic, she was now in great danger of suffering from intellectual solitude. She dearly loved her father, but he was no companion for her. He could not meet her in conversation, rational or playful. The evil of the actual disparity in their ages, and Mr. Woodhouse had not married early, was much increased by his constitution and habits. For having been a valetudinarian all his life, without activity of mind or body, he was a much older man in ways than in years, and though everywhere beloved for his friendliness, of heart and his amiable temper, his talents could not have recommended him at any time. Her sister, though comparatively but little removed by matrimony, being settled in London, only sixteen miles off, was much beyond her daily reach, and many a long October and November evening must be struggled through at Hartfield before Christmas brought the next visit from Isabella and her husband and their little children to fill the house and give her pleasant society again. Highbury, the large and populous village almost amounting to a town to which Hartfield, in spite of its separate lawn and shrubberies and name, did really belong, afforded her no equals. The Woodhouses were first in consequence there. All looked up to them. She had many acquaintance in the place, for her father was universally civil, but not one among them who could be accepted in lieu of Miss Taylor for even half a day. It was a melancholy change, and Emma could not but sigh over it and wish for impossible things till her father awoke and made it necessary to be cheerful. His spirits required support. He was a nervous man, easily depressed, fond of every body that he was used to, and hating to part with them, hating change of every kind. Matrimony, as the origin of change, was always disagreeable, and he was by no means yet reconciled to his own daughter's marrying, nor could ever speak of her but with compassion though it had been entirely a match of affection, when he was now obliged to be part with Miss Taylor too, and from his habits of gentle selfishness and of being never able to suppose that other people could feel differently from himself, he was very much disposed to think Miss Taylor had done as sad a thing for herself as for them, and would have been a great deal happier if she had spent all the rest of her life at Hartfield. Emma smiled and chatted as cheerfully as she could to keep him from such thoughts. But when tea came, it was impossible for him 
not to say exactly as he had at dinner. Poor Miss Taylor. I wish she were here again. What a pity it is that Mr. Weston ever thought of her. I cannot agree with you, Papa. You know I cannot. Mr. Weston is such a good-humored, pleasant, excellent man that he thoroughly deserves a good wife. And you would not have had Miss Taylor live with us forever and bear all my odd humors when she might have had a house of her own. A house of her own. But where is the advantage of a house of her own? This is three times as large. And you have never had any odd humors, my dear. How often we shall be going to see them and they coming to see us. We shall always be meeting. We must begin. We must go and pay our wedding visit very soon. My dear, how am I to get so far? Randall's is such a distance. I cannot walk half so far. No, Papa. Nobody thought of your walking. We must go in the carriage, to be sure. The carriage. But James will not like to put the horses to for such a little way. And where are the poor horses to be while we are paying our visit? They are to be put into Mr. Weston's stable, Papa. You know we have settled on that already. We talked it all over with Mr. Weston last night. And as for James, he may be very sure that he will always like going to Randall's because of his daughter's being housemaid there. I only doubt whether he will ever take us anywhere else. That was your doing, Papa. You got Hannah that good place. Nobody thought of Hannah till you mentioned her. James is so obliged to you. I'm very glad I did think of her. It was very lucky, for I would not have had poor James think himself slighted upon any account, and I am sure she will make a very good sermon. She is civil, pretty spoken girl. I have great opinion of her. Whenever I see her, she always curtsies and asks me how I do, in a very pretty manner, and when you have had her here to do needlework, I observe she always turns the lock of the door the right way and never bangs it. I am sure she will be an excellent servant, and it will be a great comfort to poor Miss Taylor to have somebody about her that she is used to see. Whenever James goes over to see his daughter, you know, she'll be hearing of us. He'll be able to tell her how we all are. Emma spared no exertions to maintain this happier flow of ideas, and hoped, by the help of backgammon, to get her father tolerably through the evening, and be attacked by no regrets but her own. The backgammon table was placed, but a visitor immediately afterwards walked in and made it necessary. Mr. Knightley, a sensible man about seven or eight and thirty, was not only a very old and intimate friend of the family, but particularly connected with it as the elder brother of Isabella's husband. 
He lived about a mile from Highbury, was a frequent visitor and always welcome. At this time, more welcome than usual, as coming directly from their mutual connections in London. He had returned to a late dinner after some days' absence and now walked up to Hartfield to say that all were well in Brunswick Square. It was a happy circumstance and animated Mr. Woodhouse for some time. Mr. Knightley had a cheerful manner which always did him good and his many inquiries after poor Isabella and her children were answered most satisfactorily. When this was over, Mr. Woodhouse gratefully observed, It is very kind of you, Mr. Knightley, to come out at this late hour to call upon us. I am afraid you must have had a shocking walk. Not at all, sir. It is a beautiful moonlight night, and so mild that I must draw back from your great fire. But you must have found it very damp and dirty. I wish you may not catch cold. Dirty, sir. Look at my shoes. Not a speck on them. Well, that is quite surprising, for we have had a vast deal of rain here. It rained dreadfully hard for half an hour while we were at breakfast. I wanted them to put off the wedding. By and by, I have not wished you joy, being pretty well aware of what sort of joy you must both be feeling. I have been in no hurry with my congratulations, but I hope it all went off tolerably well. How did you all behave? Who cried most? Ah, poor Miss Taylor, tis a sad business. Poor Mr. and Miss Woodhouse, if you please, but I cannot possibly say, poor Miss Taylor. I have a great regard for you and Emma, but when it comes to the question of dependence or independence, at any rate, it must be better to have only one to please than two. Especially when one of those two is such a fanciful, troublesome creature, said Emma playfully. That is what you have in your head, I know, and what you would certainly say if my father were not by. I believe it is very true, my dear friend, indeed, said Mr. Woodhouse with a sigh. I am afraid I am sometimes very fanciful and troublesome. My dearest Papa, you do not think I could mean you or suppose Mr. Knightley to mean you. What a horrible idea. Oh no, I meant only myself. Mr. Knightley loves to find fault with me, you know, in a joke. It is all a joke. We always say what we like to one another. Mr. Knightley, in fact, was one of those few people who could see faults in Emma Woodhouse, and the only one who ever told her of them. And though this was not particularly agreeable to Emma herself, she knew it would be so much less so to her father that she would not have him really suspect such a circumstance as her not being thought perfect by everybody. Emma knows I never flatter her, 
said Mr. Knightley, but I meant no reflection on anybody. Miss Taylor has been used to have two persons to please. She will now have but one. The chances are that she must be a gainer. Well, said Emma, willing to let it pass, you want to hear about the wedding, and I shall be happy to tell you, for we all behave charmingly. Everybody was punctual, everybody in their best looks, not a tear, and hardly a long face to be seen. Oh, no, we all felt that we were going to be only half a mile apart, and were sure of meeting every day. Dear Emma bears everything so well, said her father. But, Mr. Knightley, she is really very sorry to lose poor Miss Taylor, and I am sure she will miss her more than she thinks for. Emma turned away her head, divided between tears and smiles. It is impossible that Emma should not miss such a companion, said Mr. Knightley. We should not like her so well as we do, sir, if we could suppose it. But she knows how much the marriage is to Miss Taylor's advantage. She knows how very acceptable it must be at Miss Taylor's time of life to be settled in a home of her own, and how important to her to be secure of a comfortable provision, and therefore could not allow herself to feel so much pain as pleasure. Every friend of Miss Taylor must be glad to have her so happily married. And you've forgotten one matter of joy to me, said Emma, and a very considerable one, that I made the match myself. I made the match, you know, four years ago, and to have it take place, and proved in the right, and so many people said Mr. Weston could never marry again, may come for me for anything. Mr. Knightley shook his head at her. Her father fondly replied, Ah, my dear, I wish you would not make matches and forettle things, for whatever you say always comes to you. Pray do not make any more matches. I promise you to make none for myself, Papa, but I must indeed for other people. It is the greatest amusement in the world. And after such success, you know. Everybody said that Mr. Weston would never marry again. Oh dear, no. Mr. Weston, who had been a widower so long, and who seemed so perfectly comfortable without a wife, so constantly occupied either in his business in town or among his friends here, always acceptable wherever he went, always cheerful. Mr. Weston need not spend a single evening in the year alone if he did not like it. Oh no, Mr. Weston certainly would never marry again. Some people even talked of a promise to his wife on her deathbed, and others of the son and the uncle not letting him. All manner of solemn nonsense was talked on the subject, but I believe none of it. Ever since the day, about four years ago, that Miss Taylor and I met him in Broadway Lane, when, because it began to mizzle, he darted away with so much gallantry, 
and borrowed two umbrellas for us from Farmer Mitchell's. I made up my mind on the subject. I planned the match from that hour, and when such success had blessed me in this instance, dear Papa, you cannot think that I shall leave off matchmaking. I do not understand what you mean by success, said Mr. Knightley. Success supposes endeavor. Your time has been properly and delicately spent. If you have been endeavoring for the last four years to bring about this marriage, a worthy employment for a young lady's mind, but if, which I rather imagine, your making the match, as you call it, means only your planning it, your saying to yourself one idle day, I think it would be a very good thing for Miss Taylor if Mr. Weston were to marry her, and saying it again to yourself every now and then afterwards, why do you talk of success? Where is your merit? What are you proud of? You made a lucky guess, and that is all that can be said. And have you never known the pleasure and triumph of a lucky guess? I pity you. I thought you cleverer. For depend upon it, a lucky guess is never merely luck. There's always some talent in it. And as to my poor word, success, which you quarrel with, I do not know that I am so entirely without any claim to it. You've drawn two pretty pictures but I think there may be a third, a something between the do-nothing and the do-all. If I had not promoted Mr. Weston's visits here and given many little encouragements and smoothed many little matters, it might not have come to anything after all. I think you must know Hartfield enough to comprehend that. A straightforward, open-hearted man like Weston an irrational, unaffected woman like Miss Taylor may be safely left to manage their own concerns. You are more likely to have done harm to yourself than good to them by interference. Emma never thinks of herself that she can do good to others, rejoined Mr. Woodhouse, understanding but in part. But, my dear, pray do not make any more matches. They are silly things and break up one's family circle grievously. Only one more, Papa. Only for Mr. Allen. For Mr. Allen. You like Mr. Allen, Papa. I must look about for a wife for him. There is nobody in Highbury who deserves him, and he has been here a whole year and has fitted up his house so comfortably that it would be a shame to have him single any longer. And I thought when he was joining their hands today, he looked so very much as if he would like to have the same kind of office done for him. I think very well of Mr. Allen, and this is the only way I have of doing him a service. Mr. Allen is a very young man, to be sure, and a very good young man, and I have a great regard for him. But if you want to show him any attention, my dear, ask him to come and dine with us some day. That'll be a much better thing. I dare say Mr. Knightley will be so kind 
erste Meter. With a great deal of pleasure, sir, at any time, said Mr. Knightley, laughing. And I agree with you entirely that it'll be a much better thing. Invite him to dinner, Emma, and help him to the best of fish and chicken, but leave him to choose his own wife. Depend upon it, a man of six or seven and twenty can take care of himself. Chapter 2 Mr. Weston was a native of Highbury and born of a respectable family, which for the last two or three generations had been rising into gentility and property. He had received a good education, but on succeeding early in life to a small independence had become indisposed for many of the more homely pursuits in which his brothers were engaged and had satisfied an active, cheerful mind and social temper by entering into the militia of his country then embodied. Captain Weston was a general favorite, and when the chances of his military life had introduced him to Miss Churchill of a great Yorkshire family, and Miss Churchill fell in love with him, nobody was surprised except for her brother and his wife who had never seen him, and who were full of pride and importance, which the connection would offend. Miss Churchill, however, being of age and with the full command of her fortune, though her fortune bore no proportion to the family estate, was not to be dissuaded from the marriage, and it took place to the infinite mortification of Mr. and Mrs. Churchill, who threw her off with due decorum. It was an unsuitable connection and did not produce much happiness. Mrs. Weston ought to have found more in it, for she had a husband whose warm heart and sweet temper made him think everything due to her in return for the great goodness of being in love with him. But though she had one sort of spirit, she had not the best. She had resolution enough to pursue her own will in spite of her brother, but not enough to refrain from unreasonable regrets at that brother's unreasonable anger, nor from missing the luxuries of her former home. They lived beyond their income, but still it was nothing in comparison of Enscombe. She did not cease to love her husband, but she wanted at once to be the wife of Captain Weston, and Miss Churchill of Enscombe. Captain Weston, who had been considered especially by the Churchills as making such an amazing match, was proved to have much the worst of the bargain. For when his wife died, after a three years' marriage, he was a rather poorer man than at first, and with a child to maintain. From the expense of the child, however, he was soon relieved. The boy had, with the additional softening claim of a lingering illness of his mother's, been the means of a sort of reconciliation, and Mr. and Mrs. Churchill, having no children of their own, nor any young creature of equal kindred to care for, offered to take the whole charge of the little Frank soon after her decease. 
some scruples and some reluctance the widower father may be supposed to have felt. But as they were overcome by other considerations, the child was given up to the care and the wealth of the Churchills, and he had only his own comfort to seek and his own situation to improve as he could. A complete change of life became desirable. He quitted the militia and engaged in trade, having brothers already established in a good way in London, which afforded him a favorable opening. It was a concern which brought just employment enough. He had still a small house in Highbury, where most of his leisure days were spent, and between useful occupation and the pleasure of society, the next eighteen or twenty years of his life passed cheerfully away. He had by that time realized an easy competence, enough to secure the purchase of a little estate adjoining Highbury, which he had always longed for, enough to marry a woman as portionless even as Miss Taylor, and to live according to the wishes of his own friendly and social disposition. It was now some time since Miss Taylor had begun to influence his schemes, but as it was not the tyrannic influence of youth on youth, it did not shake in his determination of never settling till he could purchase Randall's, and the sale of Randall's was long looked forward to, but he had gone steadily on with these objects in view till they were accomplished. He had made his fortune bought his house and obtained his wife. It was beginning a new period of existence with every probability of greater happiness than in any yet passed through. He had never been an unhappy man. His own temper had secured him from that, even in his first marriage. But his second must show him how delightful a well-judging and truly amiable woman could be and must give him the pleasantest proof of its being a great deal better to choose than to be chosen, to excite gratitude, than to feel it. He had only himself to please in his choice. His fortune was his own. For as to Frank, it was more than being tactily brought up as his uncle's heir. It had become so avowed an adoption as to have him assume the name Churchill on coming of age. It was most unlikely, therefore, that he should ever want his father's assistance. His father had no apprehension of it. The aunt was a capricious woman and governed her husband entirely. But it was not in Mr. Weston's nature to imagine that any caprice could be strong enough to affect one so dear and as he believed so deservedly dear. He saw his son every year in London and was proud of him, and his fond report of him as a very fine young man had made Highbury feel a sort of pride in him too. He was looked on as sufficiently belonging to the place to make his merits and prospects a kind of common concern. Mr. Frank Churchill was one of the boasts of Highbury, and a lively curiosity to see him prevail though the compliment was so little return that he had never been there in his life 
his coming to visit his father had been often talked of, but never achieved. Now, upon his father's marriage, it was very generally proposed, as the most proper attention, that the visit should take place. There was not a dissentient voice on the subject, either when Mrs. Perry drank tea with Mrs. and Miss Bates, or when Mrs. and Miss Bates returned the visit. Now was the time for Mr. Frank Churchill to come among them, and the hope strengthened when it was understood that he had written to his new mother on the occasion. For a few days, every morning visit in Highbury included some mention of the handsome letter Mrs. Weston had received. I suppose you have heard of the handsome letter Mr. Frank Churchill had written to Mrs. Weston. I understand it was a very handsome letter indeed. Mr. Woodhouse told me of it. Mr. Woodhouse saw the letter, and he says he never saw such a handsome letter in his life. It was indeed a highly prized letter. Mrs. Weston had, of course, formed a very favorable idea of the young man, and such a pleasing attention was an irresistible proof of his great good sense and a most welcome addition to every source and every expression of congratulation which her marriage had already secured. She felt herself a most fortunate woman, and she had lived long enough to know how fortunate she might well be thought, or the only regret was of a partial separation from friends whose friendship for her had never cooled, and who could ill bear to part with her. She knew that at times she must be missed, and could not think without pain of Emma's losing a single pleasure, or suffering in hours and we, and the want of her companionableness. But dear Emma was of no feeble character. She was more equal to her situation than most girls would have been, and had sense and energy and spirits that might be hoped would bear her well, and happily through its little difficulties and privations. And then there was such comfort in the very easy distance of Randalls from Hartfield, so convenient for even solitary female walking, and in Mr. Weston's disposition and circumstances, which would make their approaching season no hindrance to their spending half the evenings in the week together. Her situation was altogether the subject of hours of gratitude to Mrs. Weston, and of moments only of regret and her satisfaction, or more than satisfaction. Her cheerful enjoyment was so just and so apparent that Emma, well as she knew her father, was sometimes taken by surprise at his being still able to pity poor Miss Taylor. When they left her at Randall's, in the center of every domestic comfort, or saw her go away in the evening, attended by her pleasant husband on a carriage of her own. But never did she go without Mr. Woodhouse's giving a gentle sigh and saying, Ah, poor Miss Taylor, she would be very glad to stay. There was no recovering Miss Taylor, nor much likelihood of ceasing to pity her. 
but a few weeks brought some alleviation to Mr. Woodhouse. The compliments of his neighbors were over. He was no longer teased by being wished joy of so sorrowful an event, and the wedding cake, which had been a great distress to him, was all eat up. His own stomach could bear nothing rich, and he would never believe other people to be different from himself. What was unwholesome to him, he regarded as unfit for anybody, and he had, therefore, earnestly tried to dissuade them from having any wedding cake at all, and when that proved vain, as earnestly tried to prevent anybody's eating it, he had been at the pains of consulting Mr. Perry, the apothecary, on the subject. Mr. Perry was an intelligent, gentlemanlike man, whose frequent visits were one of the comforts of Mr. Woodhouse's life, and upon being applied to, he could not but acknowledge, though it seemed rather against the bias of inclination, that wedding cake might certainly disagree with many, perhaps with most people, unless taken moderately. With such an opinion, in confirmation of his own, Mr. Woodhouse hoped to influence every visitor of the new married pair, but still the cake was eaten, and there was no rest for his benevolent nerves till it was all gone. There was a strange rumor in Highbury of all the little Perrys being seen with a slice of Mrs. Weston's wedding cake in their hands, but Mr. Woodhouse would never believe it. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.